democratic freedom fighters, led by Hunter and his allies. Determined to regain control of and unite the American continent, these democratic forces assembled small but well-equipped armies and took on the new order. After a series of hard-fought and bloody wars, democracy prevailed. America was finally reunited. Yet no sooner had this been done when another threat arose. Taking advantage of the instability that still gripped the Western Hemisphere as well as the rest of the world, a group of neo-Nazis known as the Twisted Cross seized the Panama Canal. Another bloody confrontation followed, and eventually the newly united Americans emerged triumphant. The Americans turned their attention toward rebuilding their shattered continent. The first act was played out when the traitorous vice president was brought back to America to stand trial for his crimes. He was convicted of high treason and, after surviving a bizarre assassination attempt, was imprisoned for life. In the meantime, the major cities on both American coasts began working together to resurrect the war-ravaged east and mid-sections of the country. By year five, life was beginning to take on a semblance of pre-World War III normalcy. Then another threat arose to challenge the United American cause. A huge army of outlaws, mercenaries, and Nazi Twisted Cross survivors banded together under the guiding hand of a racist white supremacist drug addict named Duke de Villian and attempted to establish control over the devastated southwest heartland of the nation. Hunter and the Allies met this challenge, too. Though heavily outgunned and facing odds of more than a hundred to one, the United Americans used cunning to crush de Villian's forces in a climactic battle in the Grand Canyon. Though de Villian himself escaped, the Freedom Express rolled triumphantly into Los Angeles, a dramatic symbol of the reunification of the nation. These victories had taken a tremendous personal toll on Hunter. Not in his flying skills, which were still unequaled, nor in his ability to use his incredibly advanced personalized form of ESP. No, the toll had been one of the heart and soul. Fighting the battles of his country had kept him from Dominique, by his own admission, the only woman he had ever loved. The last time they had seen each other was on a fog-shrouded airfield somewhere near the border of Free Canada and the Free Territory of New York. Although she ached to hold him again, to tell him that she was willing to continue her vigil while he continued the swashbuckling struggle to restore the freedom and dignity of his country, the words never came out. She turned away from him instead, her pride blinding her, her broken heart making her mute. After leaving him standing alone at that gloomy airfield, her life had become a blur. Unbeknownst to her, someone started spiking her food with a highly addictive drug called Percodex. At some point... She couldn't remember exactly when, due to the insidious drugging scheme, she had been spirited away again, this time by an organization secretly led by the beautiful but evil Elizabeth Sandlake, the same person who tried to kill the traitorous ex-vice president. And now, for the last several weeks, she had been locked up in this bleak tower, somewhere in the wilderness of western Canada. Dominique's eyes were now wet with dirty tears. She was convinced she would die in this place, guilty of the twin sins of pride and stubbornness. Oddly enough, she found herself strangely resigned to it. She stumbled back to the window for a final glimpse of the mountains and the blue sky beyond before the sunset. 
In the dull red and darkening sky, she saw the contrails of an airplane cut across the distant horizon. Suddenly, she saw the airplane turn sharply into a zigzag pattern. Then it began sculpting a skywriting pattern with ice crystals from its tail. Puzzled, she watched as slowly but steadily the white and red-tinged streaks left by the jet formed a giant W in the sky. Like a column of ghosts, the small band of soldiers moved silently through the deepening gloom of the forest. They reached the edge of a small clearing, and the group's leader held up his hand. The men behind him froze in place. Looming in front of them, in the center of the frozen glade, lay the huge, battered fuselage of a C-141 Starlifter. I'll be damned, the group's leader, a free Canadian Air Force major named Frost, said. It does exist. He nodded toward the mountain on the far side of the clearing. Several hundred feet above the timberline, barely visible in the rapidly fleeing twilight, was a gothic-like structure perched on the side of the mountain. Frost turned back to the C-141, then called up his squad leaders. This is it, guys, he said, pointing to the haunting, abandoned aircraft. Not a peep from now on in. The word was passed down the line, and then, with Frost and his lieutenant leading the way, the unit silently crossed the darkened field and climbed into the plane's bent fuselage. Then, with not a word among them, they began the anxious wait for the night to pass. A few miles to the east, another group of soldiers was advancing stealthily toward the same mountain. There were 120 of them in all, the majority of whom carried high-powered assault rifles, ammunition belts, grenades, and a full assortment of mountain-climbing gear. This contingent, known as Blue Force, was led by a tall black man named Major Lamont Catfish Johnson. Johnson was one of the United Americans' most highly decorated officers. His blue force was made up of professional soldiers that had no rivals on the American continent, and quite possibly in the entire world. As darkness fell, Johnson led his men to a particularly secluded spot in the midst of a thick grove of towering pines, and then checked his map. "'We're here,' he said simply to his second officer. Find a dry place, the second officer called back down the line of men. Cover up and check your equipment. Johnson and his second officer crawled under the overhanging branches of a particularly large northern pine. Hard to say just how well protected this place is, the second officer said, scanning the castle with his infrared nightscope binoculars. I see AA gun lights and LEDs from Sam's, but they've got a lot of places to hide things up there. He passed the nightscope glasses to Johnson. Recon is tough in the mountains, Johnson said with a comfortable tone of experience. But according to St. Louis Spook's estimates, there shouldn't be more than about 500 troops up there right now. The St. Louis Johnson referred to was Louis St. Louis, the flamboyant leader of Football City, formerly St. Louis, who, besides running the largest gambling empire in the Western Hemisphere, also operated its largest intelligence network. At the request of General David Jones commander of the United American Provisional Government, St. Louis had assigned some of his top agents to track down Duke de Villian, leader of the Knights of the Burning Cross. St. Louis' operatives also had been searching for another threat to the newly emerging American Republic, the woman named Elizabeth Sandlake. Incredibly bright as well as beautiful, Sandlake's mind had been forever twisted during the last days of her brutal captivity at the hands of the vicious canal Nazis of the Twisted Cross. 
Hunter had rescued her and eventually defeated the neo-Nazi thugs who had used her in their plot to seize control of a world in turmoil. But Elizabeth Sandlake was never the same. She had spent too many months immersed in evil to ever return to normal. The lust for power was contagious, and she caught it, setting out on her own bizarre quest to overthrow the government of America and turn the country into an all-woman aristocracy, with herself as nothing less than the queen. She convinced herself that the first step in this strange plan was the assassination of the traitorous ex-vice president. She came very close to completing this act, firing six bullets into the man minutes after he'd been convicted of high treason. Captured, tried, and convicted herself, Sandlake was considered so dangerous and such a threat to escape that it was decided that she serve her life sentence aboard a series of flying prisons. Somehow she managed to commandeer one of them and escape. It was that plane that now sat mysteriously in the middle of a field on the other side of the mountain. When all the leads were put together, it was particularly ironic that St. Louis' intelligence operatives traced both Devillian and Sandlake to the same spot, this fortress lodged on the side of the mountain here in the wilds of western Canada. But as far as irony went, this was only the beginning. As a personal favor, Hawk Hunter had asked St. Louis to also find a trail that would lead him back to Dominique, and St. Louis obliged. But even the top intelligence experts at Football City were spooked when the twisted trail in search of Hunter's paramour eventually wound up at this same desolate mountain outpost. As the first orange and yellow streaks of dawn began to edge the blackness away from the eastern horizon, the hundred and twenty men of Catfish Johnson's Blue Force 